Hi, this is Caleb from Mountain Vernon, Ohio. Dusted is a story wonk podcast. To show your support and for exclusive content, visit patreon.com slash storywonk. Thanks. everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm Alistair Stevens. And I'm Lonnie Diane Rich, and this is Dusted, your Powered by Raw Enthusiasm Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast. In case you're curious, that is what it says on Lonnie's business card. This week, we begin with The Replacement, the third episode of the fifth season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Before we get to that, though, a minor correction from our commentary on Buffy versus Dracula a couple of weeks ago, Lonnie. <laughs> yes. Uh, it turns out we thought that Tector Gorch, the uh, surviving Gorch brother who was in Bad Eggs and then escaped Sunnydale alive at the end of Homecoming, would have been a better choice than Dracula. As it turns out, Tector would not have been a better choice because he is actually the brother that turned into a big pile of dust. Well, I'm not sure that still wouldn't be true, but you're right. Very Tector true. Gorch is dead. Lyle Gorch is the surviving Gorch brother. Exactly. This correction came to us from the wonderful Lauren, who I know we drove half crazy (laughs) when we kept saying Tector (laughs) in that episode. Lauren, all I can say is, you obviously haven't read my fanfiction where Lyle changes his name to Tector in honor of his fallen brother. Yes, that's totally canon. It's not, but it's as good an explanation (laughs) as any. Tector Gorch, we hardly knew ye. Lyle Gorch, Come back soon. (laughs) There are still canonical comics. Lyle Gorch could show up again any minute. We would love to see Lyle. Yes. (laughs) Thank you, Lauren, for the correction. Let's get into our discussion of The Replacement, because, Lonnie, I know this is one of your favorites. Yes, it is. I have been looking forward to this episode since we started Dusted. This is one of my favorite episodes, and I know it is not necessarily one of the most important or most, like, you know, pivotal to the big story, (laughs) uh, but I absolutely love it. There is something about Jane Espenson that, that what she writes, her sense of humor, her sense of of emotion and connection and character is so closely matched to my own mm-hmm. that pretty much everything she does just leaves me giggling and happy. So that was that was mostly my experience during this episode. <laughs> and she shows up in full form. This is perhaps the most Jane Espenson script that we've seen so far. I think this is Jane Espenson really being the Jane Espenson that I have fallen in love with, yeah. This episode also directed by James A. Contner, one of our favorite Buffy directors. This really is the A-team on this episode. Let's get into it. We will have a lot to discuss. Previously on Buffy, nobody understands Dawn, and it's always been this way. Though maybe things have hit a new low now that Anya has been hurt in a vampire attack. We open the episode with Buffy, Riley, Anya, and Xander hanging out in his basement, watching a Bruce Lee movie, and listening to Xander's parents drunkenly fight. Buffy is distracted by a history book, and Riley doesn't want her filling her pretty little head with new ideas and information. He gives Buffy a shoulder rub, and she critiques the choreography in the movie, which is also apparently irritating to Riley, and also maybe a high-risk strategy for the show Buffy the Vampire Slayer. (laughs) The choreography is generally pretty good, but pretty good. 
I think it's a nice little reference and it almost it's almost like teasing yourself. Like exactly. I think that they're I think that they're taking a little jab. And I, I like that Jane Espenson does those things that sort of, you know, whisper about the culture behind the scenes. It's sort I of fun. That's yeah. a that's a great observation. Xander's discomfort grows as his parents' fight increases in volume, and we finally cut away to a demon with a cauldron talking about the death of the slayer. Seems like a regular Thursday in Sunnydale. What do you think of the cold open? I love the cold open. I mean, it's a nice moment. I like Riley has this sensitivity about Xander's insecurities about his family is upstairs fighting. Then, you know, Xander sees Riley rubbing Buffy's shoulders. And so he starts to rub Anya's shoulder. But of course, Anya's shoulder has been recently dislocated and that is not appealing to her. Um, So it's this nice little moment where Xander can't seem to get comfortable. He can't seem to do anything right. And of course, Riley is presented as like the good boyfriend in this section, but not really. We've had something of an ongoing debate. It's almost turned into a drinking game. Yes. Whenever we say that a particular character is the worst, Mm -hmm. Riley is the worst. Yeah, Riley is a monster. But it's not acknowledged in the writing as, I don't think that he's supposed to be bad. I don't think he's deliberately being represented as bad. He's just being Riley. He's undercutting Buffy at every turn while claiming this broken heart victimhood. Yeah. Which is just utterly repellent. No, He doesn't have a line in the entire episode that doesn't make me want to just slap him silly. But from Xander's perspective, and I feel like we really are in Xander's POV in this scene, it feels like his understanding of the world. He looks at Riley and feels inadequate. See, I don't think that's true. I don't think we're in Xander's POV necessarily. Mm -hmm. I think we get a more objective sense because we see Xander's discomfort, but we also see that mirrored in the discomfort of the people around him. Yeah, true. I think we're in a much more neutral POV. This doesn't feel like the Zeppo, for example, where it's an authored Mm -hmm. story of Xander's experience. It feels much more like a traditional episode of Buffy and that fairly neutral third-person observer role Mm -hmm. that we're cast in. The problem is that I I do like Xander's interactions with Riley. Mm -hmm. I do potentially like Xander's relationship with Riley with that blossoming friendship. We've talked about that in previous episodes, and it kind of works for me. The problem is that Riley is just so bad that I am judgmental of Xander for not slapping himself. (laughs) It's great that Xander gets to be all empathetic Mm -hmm. at the end of the episode in particular, but when you are empathetic towards someone who is so clearly undeserving of empathy... That reflects poorly on you. I don't think that it does. I think I I like Xander and I like his relationship with Riley. While it does not elevate Riley, who is pretty terrible, I think it elevates Xander. But I think that that's a conversation we can have after we hit the end scene and have that full discussion. Okay, let's move on. We cut through the credits and the next morning, the Scoobies are checking out a new apartment for Xander, who is less than impressive to the rental agent. Anya is enthusiastic about the new place, but Xander's construction job is ending soon and he can't afford it. And he reminds her that she does, in fact, have her own place. She's upset and leaves, and we cut away from the awkwardness to Giles, taking inventory on the magic shop when the demon from the cold open appears, resists somehow being pummeled by the statue of a fertility god, and knocks Giles across the room, though not, importantly, knocking him out. It's a whole new world for Rupert Giles. Well, I'm not dead or unconscious, so I say bravo for me. (laughs) We all say bravo for you, sir. The scene in the apartment is pretty great. Yes. Mm -hmm. I do feel that we're playing up Xander's 
incompetence, awkwardness mm -hmm. a little. Mm -hmm. I think that he has been of late ever so slightly more self-aware. But yes. clearly we're playing this to to emphasize the distinction between the two halves of his personality mm -hmm. that we'll see later. The problem is that weak Xander, trash Xander, as yeah. I'm going to call him trash throughout Xander. the episode, <laughs> trash Xander and kind of pre-sundering Xander mm -hmm. are pretty much the same guy. So when we're told that all of this confidence and, and, and suavete are inside of Xander all along, the yeah. magic was inside you all along, it doesn't seem to be evident in the scenes at the beginning of the episode. No, that's why I feel like we're in Xander's POV. I feel like we are seeing Xander the way that Xander sees himself as bumbling and incompetent and unable to do these things. We feel his insecurities, even though from a more neutral POV in the past few episodes, we've seen him assert himself more. We've seen him become more confident. We've seen him kind of grow into, into his current place as the heart, the soul, the emotion of the Scoobies. I think that's a possible interpretation, but I don't see anything in the text of the episode that leads me to believe that we are, in fact, in the POV of, of pre-Sundering Xander yes. or Trash Xander. Mm -hmm. I think that when we have the cutaways to Buffy and Riley or to Willow admiring the ceiling fan or these little <laughs> interstitial scenes, we don't have a sense that they are behaving differently, that they are behaving in a manner that is consistent with being filtered through Xander's awareness and perspective Very and consciousness the way that they did arguably back in the mm -hmm. Zeppo. Sure. I just don't get that sense. I I'd see what you're saying and if I could if I could see that distinction if I could see that shift in POV I might well like mm -hmm. the first Xander that we get in this episode a little more than I do. I think it's simpler than that. I think he's simply somewhat exaggerated so that there's a higher contrast between trash Xander and and cool Xander. Mhm. Mm We'll talk more on that in sure just a few minutes. The apartment, though, that's yeah. a nice set. I like that <laughs> set. I like all the new sets. I'm having so much fun in this episode. It's pretty great moving into the uh, last episode of Angel mm -hmm. and the, the real emergence of the Hyperion Hotel as oh, a yeah. significant location in that show's mythos. You can always tell mm -hmm. when it's a disposable set that we'll never return to. Exactly. <laughs> and an actual set that's going to be significant <laughs> moving forward. I like this apartment very much. No, I think my favorite moment is uh, when Anya's like, oh, we can have all the Scooby meetings in the living room and Giles can explain the boring things over there. It has, again, such a reference, such a, a, an understanding of what it is that they do there. Yes. This, this kind of self-referential uh, joking, which, of course, again, goes back to Jane Espenson delighting me. Yes, and yes. carries forward into the scene in the mm -hmm. magic shop, yeah. which is pretty great. Mm -hmm. We do have our first kind of real encounter with the Toth demon. Yes. What do you make of the Toth demon? Um, I think the Toth demon looks pretty cool. I kind of like, certainly. The, the visual like the design is pretty great. Presence. I yeah. like the costuming of the Toth demon. Um, I think overall, the threat of the Toth demon, this idea that, you know, you are not the Slayer, you do not concern me, I'm not going to hurt anybody but the Slayer, you know, I'm here in peace, I just want to kill your Slayer, you know, this kind of thing, <laughs> which seems to me a little unusual. Most of these demons are like, you know what, you're in my way, I'll kill you too, I don't care, you know, let me test out my little, you know, soul-splitting rod here. Sure. Um, but uh, but I, I love when Giles hits him in the head repeatedly with the fertility statue. It's just cute. He's just, I like him fighting. He's, he's, he's tough. It is a pretty effective scene. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I feel like we don't follow through on mm -hmm. Toth as a significant threat. We were talking a little about the way that the conflict is paced mm -hmm. in this episode prior to beginning the podcast. Yeah. And I think that we've 
kind of agreed that the episode would be stronger without Toth. Yeah. Had Xander simply found some magical trinket in the magic shop. From the magic box had just like been typical clumsy, you know, Xander and had screwed something up by picking up an amulet and putting it on or something like that and that that had caused it. I think that that might have been because it would have spoken to what the essential theme of this episode is, which is that Xander is not even himself aware of everything that he has within him and that he sees himself as this bumbling idiot who constantly has to be rescued when in reality he does have capability. So if it was some of that like bumbling idiocy that actually caused this split to happen, I think that thematically that would have spoken to that story a little bit more. That and we would said, have had all the same reflection yeah. on, mm-hmm. on Buffy's story arc. The whole thing would have sure. worked. We wouldn't have been saddled with a plot that doesn't necessarily make the most amount of sense. With a, with a demon that's kind of a little bit weak sauce. Toth's yeah. plan, just to put this in perspective, <laughs> is to split Buffy into her two component parts. Yes. The Slayer side and the Buffy side. He seems very sure that that is what this this magic wand will do to her. Mm-hmm. Then he can kill the vulnerable human Buffy and in so doing, kill the Slayer Buffy. Yes. That is a great, sensible, perfect plan. Except that step one is create a superpowered version of the Slayer. <laughs> if I am a demon, the last thing I want running around is a more powerful version of the Slayer. Well, would it have been... Okay, could it have been more interesting if we'd spent enough time with Toth to realize that he is like the Xander of the demon set? <laughs> that he's like the bumbling, goofy guy who comes up with an now, idea and then needs to be rescued by, you, his, by his demon buddies? Wouldn't that have been hilarious? When you talk about alternate interpretations for the episode, that is one of my favorites. <laughs> Though it does become a little sad then that Buffy stabs him to death in Xander's new apartment. No, no, because his demon friends would come and rescue him and they would run off like Lyle Gorch. Right. Yes, exactly. To a farm upstate. To a farm upstate, absolutely. I like that. Ultimately, I don't think that we invest enough time or energy into Toth and his storyline to justify his place in the episode. And I do think that there are richer alternative approaches to doing this story Mm -hmm. that would speak more directly to theme and not force us into... What are trivial and perfunctory encounters with Toth first in the the city dump Mm -hmm. and then later in Xander's apartment? I think, yes. I think you could go one way or the other. You could either do more Toth and give us a little more characterization and make him a Xander demon, which I think would be really fun, or no Toth at all and make it Xander's bumbling that gets him in this predicament in the first place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Later, Giles tells the Scoobies his heroic story and finds the demon in a book. Toth is supposed to be a skilled warrior with, like, tools and weapons and opposable thumbs. He's got the whole package. (laughs) We cut away to the aforementioned city dump, where the Scoobies find Spike at his most inglorious. Not a great moment for Spike. I think it's fantastic. He manages to wrap his shreds of wounded pride around him as he's filling his cart with detritus. Absolutely. Nobody mentions the mannequin hand, which is pretty great. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's it's a cute scene, but you start to feel a little bad for Spike at some point. Yeah, well, Spike, I mean, the thing with Spike in this episode is you could, like, lift Spike out entirely and it wouldn't affect the overall episode, but it is a nice little element to have in there. It's nice. It doesn't take anything away. It doesn't put additional weight on the narrative. Yes, this is the point in its run when Buffy is becoming 
genuinely a serialized More show. serialized, yeah. The episodic adventures will still drive the bulk of the plot, but we are now getting a significant amount of time in each episode devoted to a number of ongoing subplots, not just the season arc, not just the primary antagonist who, as yet, hasn't been introduced. Yes. But we've got a number of plots on the back burner here, there are a few things that we will talk about in the spoiler zone sure we at will. the end of the show. <laughs> Toth attacks, then runs away, but not before Xander takes a direct hit from that weird energy-blasting magic wand. Xander gets to his feet and the others help him limp away, but we drift back to the pile of garbage where another Xander lies unconscious. It's, as I said, a perfunctory fight scene. <laughs> Toth apparently only has three charges left in that magic wand of his. He fires them off and is then like, okay, I got to plug this thing in. I can never find the right USB cord. I know. It's going to charge for a good eight hours before I can try this again. Just updated the operating system and killed the freaking battery. (laughs) Yes. The next morning, Trash Xander wakes and stumbles out of his pile of garbage, returning to his basement. The door is locked and he hurts his foot by kicking it. But when he peers in through the window, he sees himself and this is really the start of the episode yeah no this This is is the start of the primary plot Mm -hmm. let's talk a little about nicholas brandon yes Mm -hmm. (laughs) he's pretty great he is fantastic and just happens to come a complete set with a twin brother (laughs) who looks i have to say like so much like him sometimes when they're right next to each other it's really hard for me to tell which is which i sort of can and I'm not sure that Kelly Donovan, and I could be mistaken, this is how like incredibly identical they are. I feel like whichever Xander was more prominent, be it Trash yes. Xander or Suave Xander, that's what Nicholas Brendan played. Exactly. And right. then Kelly Donovan just did the, you know, the you secondary. Can tell the difference if you look at Nicholas Brendan playing Suave Xander. Yes. And then you look at Nicholas Brendan playing Trash Xander alongside his brother. Yeah. You can tell the difference. Yes. But it is uncanny. It and is. And it allows them to really play with the form because normally you would do this with mm-hmm. some kind of awkward split screening. Some kind of, yeah. Which mm-hmm. in the year 2000 would have been an inelegant solution. It wasn't as good as that kind of thing is now. You watch something like Orphan Black and you're right. like, oh my God. I and admire then, yeah. James Contner's restraint as a yeah. director uh-huh. because I would have had them crossing uh-huh. over each other, handing off objects to each other, <laughs> high-fiving. I would have had them doing all the things that you can't do easily with split screen exactly. in the year 2000. Just to say, I got twins. But there are yeah. only a couple of conspicuous shots where yeah. you're like, wait, no, you couldn't do that if it was just Nicholas Brandon playing both parts. And my favorite shot in this whole thing is when the two of them are giggling with each other that they use <laughs> over and over again. We will see it in the yes. opening credits for many, many, many years to come. It is um, one of those yeah. shots that if you've seen Buffy before... Mm-hmm. It stands out in the episode because you think, ah, there it is. Yeah, that's every time where you see one from. of those shots from the credit sequence, you're like, <laughs> <Yeah>. oh yeah. <laughs> so the performances are wonderful throughout. How do these two versions of Xander line up with our expectations? Are we in Trash Xander's POV through the first half of the story, where we are genuinely led to believe that Suave Xander is evil? Mm-hmm. And how well do the two halves of Xander work after we find out that, no, in fact, they're both 
100% authentic Xander. That's my favorite part of this episode because Xander is, as we had in Buffy versus Dracula, kind of everybody's butt monkey. He's the guy who gets the funny syphilis, right? Um, so he's always kind of the bumbling, goofy guy. And I have always seen in Xander, even during his like less elegant, you know, periods early on in the early seasons, um, where he can kind of be a jerk, I've always felt this affection for Xander that he has within him something better than even he sees. So this particular episode where we actually textually acknowledge that Xander has strengths um, has always delighted me. That I think is one of the reasons the episode doesn't quite sit as well with me as it Mm -hmm. does with you, because Mm -hmm. I feel that in order to make this point, we've actually regressed Xander a little bit. Mm -hmm. We talked about his epiphany at the end of Buffy versus Dracula. We talked about the way he was depicted in Real Me and that there was, in fact, a certain new maturity and confidence there. This does feel like pre-season three Xander. This feels, Xander at the beginning of this episode feels like a very early sketch of this character. Uh, Uh, A sweaty, awkward, barely competent version of Xander. No, I feel like this is mid-season four Xander that we're seeing. But I, but again, I feel like we are so deeply in Xander's POV for this that we're seeing him how he views himself. But that's not consistent with the way he views himself in the Zappa, which we now take to be unequivocally in his POV. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because he does see himself not always in the most heroic light, mm-hmm. but certainly as as barely capable. But season four, he took quite a hit to his yeah. confidence. And I think that that has affected the way that he sees himself. I think this is where we reset Xander's internal perception of himself. And I quite like it. It works for me really I think nicely. we reset the external perception of, of Xander's character, but I feel as though we'd already done that a little bit. This is the thing with this episode. I like it much more as a standalone episode. Yes. I like it less as an integrated piece of Xander's arc because it feels like had this episode appeared late season four, I would have been in. I would have been convinced by it. But I feel like we've already moved past this and resetting Xander to this earlier state, exaggerating some of his less heroic, less admirable qualities Mm -hmm. in the first instance so that we can draw the emphasis in the second instance. I feel like that does serve to undercut some of the genuine emotional growth that he's gone through, some of the work that the other writers have done, a lot of the work that Nicholas Brandon has done. Mm -hmm. I feel like those experiences, that arc, should count more than it does in this episode. No, it feels I a little out of place. And I think that's probably why, because I see it so much deeper in his POV, that while we have seen him arc into this place of strength and capability, I'm not sure that he has seen it as much in himself. No, I, I see your point. I'm just not... So it works for me. I think what it does is it puts a cap on that Xander, that we are now textually acknowledging that Xander is much more capable, much stronger, much better than we have seen him generally in the past and definitely than he has seen himself. Well, not yet. He's not. He goes off to call (laughs) Buffy, but Handsome got his crap together. Xander walks by and trash Xander all but panics. Buffy is preparing for some toth hunting, meanwhile, and when she and Riley kiss, Dawn makes choking sounds from the doorway. Joyce, we learn, has a headache, which is probably, God, you know, probably nothing and completely fine. Buffy takes the simple precaution of closing her door on her annoying little sister, and we cut away to Spike's crypt, where he's dressing up a mannequin in a blonde wig. He kicks it apart, then cradles the head and promises this surrogate Buffy one of these days. Which is 
also totally, totally fine. Totally fine and a normal thing to do. Completely a normal thing. It is interesting that we stole the pace of the episode so that we get these two scenes back to back that do mm-hmm. nothing but advance our ongoing plots. Well, and also it gives me a chance to have somebody standing in for me in that moment where Buffy and Riley are, are kissing and Dawn <laughs> makes those gagging sounds and I think, go Dawn. I'm with Dawn in that moment. <laughs> I do think that this is well-written Dawn. Mm-hmm. Yes. I do think that this is authentic 14-year-old mm-hmm. younger sister being deliberately provocative. Yes. The whole, I'm not in your room, I'm in the hallway, and you don't own the hallway. Exactly. <laughs> We've heard that conversation in this house more than once. <laughs> I I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. It, Dawn is not likable, yes. which is difficult when she appears only to be mm-hmm. you know, this, the annoying this little sister. slightly annoying yeah. and provocative. Mm-hmm. I can understand people's response, but I do think there's a distinction between badly written annoying Dawn, mm-hmm. unintentionally annoying yes. Dawn, and, and intentionally annoying Dawn. Yes, exactly. This is absolutely for me mm-hmm. the latter and, and really quite good. Yeah. And I do think that Jane Espenson manages to draw out a good sense of Buffy's family life. Yeah, mm-hmm. There's a texture to it, a familiarity to it that isn't quite the somewhat stagey, somewhat overplayed, forced intimacy mm-hmm. of real me, but is something just a little more comfortable and a little more confident. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, is that we are rebuilding this family life. This isn't a family life that we have seen before. It was just Buffy and Joyce. And now we have Dawn in there and she is changing some of the dynamic. So we need to kind of step into this family life already in motion sure. and sort of express what it is now and show us how that world is, is ever so slightly different, ever so slightly off. So I like that. At the construction site, Cologne commercial Xander gets to work and sits down with the foreman while Trash Xander watches from outside. The new and improved Xander Harris isn't actually getting fired, but promoted. And later, he charms the hell out of the rental agent, all while playing with that same mysterious silver coin. The rental agent comes on to him, gives him her home phone number, but apartment renting Xander just calls Anya and tells her to come over at nine. In the hall outside, though, it's a grudge match for the ages as button-down Xander is attacked by Trash Xander. He lays him out with one punch, but when Trash Xander gets to his feet and runs off to find Buffy, his counterpart is already there and has already convinced the Slayer that he's the real deal. That is such a nice scene. Mm -hmm. The scene of Xander outside in the rain. Yeah. This desperate need, this belief that Buffy will will see, will know, will understand. Mm-hmm. It makes us immediately think back to Giles as the Fural Demon. Oh, of sure, course. yeah. Buffy, Buffy should know faith? these things. Right, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. Buffy doesn't have an unimpeachable track record when it comes sure. to such things. <laughs> but it's nice that Xander's faith is so directly placed. Right. He knows that Buffy will be able to tell the difference or or believes that Buffy will be able right. to tell the see difference. See that it's not me. See that I can't be this guy. Yeah. Except that Buffy does see that Xander can be that guy and is that guy. Yes. Except that this JC Penny model version of Xander isn't behaving quite like our Xander. It is different enough that we're aware of it. Mm-hmm. And that would be okay, except later in the episode Buffy is also aware of it. Yes. (laughs) 
Didn't he seem a little smooth? A Didn't little he seem too, yeah. a little completely unlike the Xander that we have known for the last five years? <laughs> well, because he's not moderated by Goofy Xander. So Goofy Xander, who's outside in the rain, Trash Xander, right, is also, you know, a bit too much on the right. other end. I think so the problem here... one of them is really genuinely the full Xander. That's absolutely true. But I think the problem here is the lampshading of it. Mm-hmm. We know what's going on. So we're in Xander's POV as he's looking on. Mm-hmm. We can understand why... Buffy is believing this apparently fake artificial version of Xander when Buffy acknowledges that he was acting out of character. That, for me, is a little across the line. That, mm-hmm. for me, I think that calling attention to the fact that this version of Xander was acting out of character just makes me question Buffy's decisions earlier in the episode. Yeah, I don't know, because they are both Xander. So they are both Xander at his Which best and Xander at his worst. With. And without those two sides moderating each other, then both Trash Xander and Cologne Commercial right. Xander are going to feel somewhat wrong. I agree for us. Mm-hmm. Buffy needs to believe that this is Xander in order for her actions to make sense. Xander, acting like this, dressed like this, with his hair like this, shows up and said, oh yeah, demon totally took my face, but you can handle <laughs> that, right, Buff? You'll just like, kill the guy. What? <laughs> Yeah, I guess. It's a wonder that she didn't stake him there and then. Well, especially considering that this is a world in which very regularly people who look exactly (laughs) like the person you think they are are not the person you think they are. Buffy has been through this fairly recently, in fact. (laughs) She hikes up his pant legs. She sees matching socks. She kills him there and then. (laughs) Exactly. And I can see, I understand that we play up the difference for our benefit. Mm -hmm. The problem here is not that Buffy is convinced by this fake Xander or this this side of Xander, what Mm -hmm. we believe at the time to be a fake Xander. It's that she then reflects on it and says, oh, yeah, that was really weird, that decision I made. (laughs) You mentioned earlier that Jane has a skill and it's certainly a tendency for framing Buffy as a fictional text. Mm -hmm. She will lean on the fourth wall. And I think that having Buffy acknowledge her experience with fake Xander is actually an example of that tendency not serving the story. Okay. It's it's a wink toward the camera mm-hmm. that does serve, I think, to somewhat undercut the, the reality, the authenticity of the story we're being told. Yeah, I can see that. From there, Trash Xander goes to find Willow and tells her stories of their shared childhood of fire trucks and of bad brie and, of course, of Snoopy dances. Only it turns out that Willow hasn't heard that there's a problem and has no reason not to believe that he's Xander, which is a beat that I adore. He tells her his story and she seems to believe him. We cut back to Giles' place where the Scoobies are already working on a plan. It turns out it's Toth and Trash Xander catches up just a moment later. He's also having a crisis of confidence, lamenting his uselessness as a part of the team. And his duplicate seems to be doing a better job of living his life than Trash Xander ever has. But he can't have Anya. Trash Xander gives chase, giving Willow just a moment to call back to her experiences with her own evil twin. I like the way that we cut back and forth from these two very similar scenarios. Mm -hmm. I like the texture between the two of them. Does it feel like it takes us a little while to get to the point? Um, no, I actually quite like this moment. I like where Xander sort of struggles with the idea of... This guy is doing it better. He's living my life better than me. Um, It does 
sort of, you know, beg the question that uh, Xander is, um, this guy is a demon. Xander believes that this guy wearing his face is a demon. So even though he's doing a pretty good job with Xander's life, he also probably, if he's a demon, has some bad intent. And has a special silver magical coin, which Xander believes at this point is giving him the ability to put the whammy on those around him. Exactly. He's not really living Xander's life better. Mm-hmm. He's, He's manipulating, manipulating everybody. Yes. Not to mention the fact, but th- there's this nice moment, though, where Xander realizes that it's Anya, that as mm-hmm. soon as it's like this guy I is going like to get near much. Anya. Yeah. Xander, that's the moment when this stops being about him pitying himself and about protecting her. This, for me, is the part of the episode that is compromised the most by the inclusion of Toth mm-hmm. in the plot. Had we not had the presence of an evil demon in the episode, had this just been some kind of magical accident that had split Xander, had Xander believed not that his counterpart was Toth in Xander form, but simply was an evil Xander, Mm -hmm. I think we would have had even more texture here. I think this would have spoken more directly to the themes that the episode is trying to explore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it might have. At the new apartment, shiny coin Xander is winning Anya over, but only, it would seem, for a moment. She's ready to move on to the next thing, puppies or children or whatever, stricken by her own mortality now that she's suddenly human, for the first time. Because we've apparently forgotten that Anya was a human girl who got a job with the Hoffren and not a demon. Yeah, except that she's been a demon for 1,200 years. She was a girl for like 18. So I think that when you compare... You know, those that the amount of time that she spent being an immortal demon That's that true. you sort of get used to these things. But you I know? think it's an important part of Anya's character that she's not a demon, that she was a human girl and now is again instead of becoming human for the first time. That is a thing about Anya that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. That creates some really interesting possibilities for narrative. Yeah. We have all but disposed of that now. Yeah, we tend to see her as just simply a demon, although I do understand that I think 1,200 years, hell, when I've no, had a job for three weeks, I completely identify I'm with that I'm not disagreeing <laughs> with that at all. I think that there's a richness to the Anya that we established mm-hmm. in canon. We have done away with that. Now she is simply a vengeance demon who has become human for the first time. Mm-hmm. That is almost textually explicit. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to do some major justification to explain away mm-hmm. some of the stresses in this conversation, some of the ways that Xander right. in particular approaches her circumstance. But I love the way that Xander, like, and this is, for our understanding, evil Xander, um, having this ability to identify with her, to yep. talk to her, to counsel her through this sudden struggle with mortality, which she hasn't had to deal with it's for over a thousand years. a really good scene. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy it. I love giving Anya more to do. I love giving her this inner conflict. Mm-hmm. I think it's absolutely convincing and compelling. It is a great scene. I just lament a little the Anya that we never got to know. We've taken some of the texture off. Uh, just just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And even that isn't terribly important. It's just you used to be nothing but a demon and now you are human mm-hmm. is to me less important than You've had this full experience. Mm-hmm. You were human. You remember what that was like, but it was so long ago as to be almost unimaginable. Yes. How has the world changed? How has your experience changed? Xander has this line about you've never been hurt in human form before. Mm-hmm. It would be really interesting if she called back to memories of when she was 15, mm-hmm. a thousand years ago, and broke her arm or mm-hmm. something like that, that she has this accumulated experience that she has forgotten about, that she never thought she would have to deal with again. Mm-hmm. Instead, 
just the demon to human transition for me feels a little more flat. And I am all in favor of giving Anya, giving Emma Caulfield more to do. Oh, absolutely. Because she's incredible. But one of the things that I like is how this plays with this duality that mm-hmm. we are at this moment. If this is the first time you're watching this episode at this moment, we think that this is Demon Xander yes. who has just become human. And what is the plan here, Toth? You know, And so he's talking as much from the experience possibly of, you know, this Toth demon who has suddenly, you know, gotten this human life and what mm-hmm. he's going to do with that, um, which I think is really interesting. Although now, of course, knowing that this is just suave Xander, that this is just all of Xander's <laughs> strengths, that he has that ability. And this is something that we're going to see in Xander more and more going forward, which is what I've always loved about Xander, to connect emotionally with yes, the people around him, that to he empathize. Is the heart of the team. Yeah, no, I really, I like this in, I like the way that this scene sort of has a, a prism that you can look through and it shifts depending on what your experience is, who you think this Xander is when you watch it, but it works in both contexts. I, I like so. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Trash Xander interrupts their romantic moment, but Anya believes that Fancy Pants Xander is telling the truth. We cut back to Giles where Willow and Buffy put their heads together, but Giles already has the answer. Willow asks if it's a robot, but that would be just crazy. Both Xanders, we learn, are Xander, and neither is Toth. Toth, in fact, doesn't matter at all. But if one of the Xanders dies, then they both die. And back at the apartment, Trash Xander has brought a gun. I very much like the return to a common motif in Buffy, Mm -hmm. which is that guns are super dangerous Mm -hmm. and not to be messed with casually. I like that very much. I do not like that Anya owns a gun. Mm -hmm. I see it as completely consistent that Anya would totally own a gun. Anya is now human. She doesn't have the ability to protect herself that she used to have. And not to mention that Anya does seem to me fairly politically conservative. I think that she would appreciate a second. I think she is in a Second Amendment kind of girl. I don't know. I could see her having... It's not about Anya's character as Mm -hmm. much as it is the approach to guns that we generally get from the Buffyverse. Yes. I could see her having some kind of ritual dagger or some kind of bag of magical powder. Something more arcane. To defend herself. No, I completely understand the gun. I think that's exactly where Anya would go. And I think that it does show that Anya is philosophically always somewhat at odds with the rest of the Buffy crew. I I think it completely makes sense that she would have a gun. Yeah, it doesn't work for me, particularly this version of Anya was always a demon and now she's human. Mm -hmm. I don't feel that a demon would necessarily go to a gun as the first choice for self-protection. I think that Anya would go to whatever she thought was no. going to give her the biggest edge. That yeah. said, though, <laughs> while I don't necessarily like the idea that Anya keeps a firearm in her mm-hmm. house, I do like the inclusion of the gun in the showdown between the Xanders. Sure. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. it does. We have been taught by Buffy to see guns as being weapons of unearned and unpredictable power. That's the thing. Guns are bad for storytelling. This is something that I teach in my in my screenwriting class. Um, whenever I have students who try to resolve a conflict by bringing out a gun, what you've done is you created this incredible power imbalance. Yeah. And, and it is unearned. And unearned power is not satisfying from a story perspective. Mm-hmm. It has to be about a character earning that power, using that power well. Um, so I think that once you get guns, once you get bombs, once you get all 
all of these escalating technologies that allow people who haven't earned their power to wield that power in a story that is about unearned power? Sure, absolutely. But Buffy is not that story. And that's why guns don't work in this context. Buffy and Riley race to the rescue, taking time out to talk about Riley's inadequacy and jealousy of her slayer half. This is one of those conversations where he seems to be saying all the right things, and I find it completely unconvincing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if this is a deliberate dissonance. I don't know. I genuinely don't know if Jane Espenson is leading us to believe that Riley is a good guy in a difficult situation and Mark Lucas's performance is letting him down. Mm -hmm. Or Jane is giving us a perspective on a very flawed and ultimately somewhat unlikable character. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of feel like everything that Riley says, especially in his interactions with Buffy, is they're just bad. They're just weak. They're just are we deliberately trying to make Riley like just so wrong for Buffy? Is this something they're conscious of? It, it could well like be. They, it feels like they've got to be, because otherwise, wouldn't you write him better? <laughs> <laughs> well, you might try wouldn't to. Wouldn't you write him as a better it person? It does speak to the fundamental problem with Riley that we identified back in season four. Uh, the fundamental problem with so many of Buffy's boyfriends over the years. He makes her less. He well, wants yeah. her to be less than she is. Does he want her to be? Because, I, I mean, I actually, in at, every on the action, surface... No, when I like he, that he says, I want the whole you that you don't, you but can't I don't, be you without the part of you that makes you strong. But it feels like a lie because everything else that he says and exactly. does undercuts that. When he takes away her history book. Yes. When he makes fun of her for reading her history book, for and, crying and out loud. And mocks her for making fun of the, yeah. for being a, a fight wonk, I which don't if believe, anybody is, she should be. Yeah. I don't believe for a moment that Riley wants Buffy to be all that she is. Right. I think he's well aware that she is So this is the passive-aggressive lie that he says on the surface so that he can say, look, I said that I want exactly. you to be everything that you are, except that, is, that every action he takes undercuts that. That is absolutely how I read it. Yeah. I don't know if that's intentional. I don't know. I mean, it seems like with writers this good, with writers this aware, that they would be doing that deliberately because it seems a little bit too perfect to mm-hmm. be... Just accidental. It could well be. Um, It may well be the case that we are being led to see Riley in an unfavorable light. Though that just puts a question mark over the entire last scene between Riley and Xander. Yeah. Which which I think, again, we're going to have this discussion at the end. Because I don't think that you can talk about Riley in this episode until you've got all of those scenes together. Smooth Xander and Trash Xander fight over the gun, but Trash Xander loses. Because that's what Trash Xander does. Buffy finally intervenes and splits them apart. And they talk it out. It turns out that the magical shiny disc is simply a railroad-flattened nickel, and our guys maybe aren't so different after all. And that's when Toth appears, because we've suddenly remembered that we still have to deal with Toth. Riley and Buffy attack the demon, and Buffy quickly kills it with a sword. There goes Xander's cleaning deposit. (laughs) Again, perfunctory. Mm -hmm. I like that it's a swift fight sequence, Yeah, but it doesn't seem to match the danger that has been associated with Toth throughout this whole time yeah i think that now that we've resolved the deception now that we've resolved the the construct at the heart of the episode we need to dispose of toth quickly so that we can get back to the actual story which is that xander has been split which is about the split xander yes Mm -hmm. at the magic shop the xanders are inspected by the ladies anya has an alternate plan for the evening but we'll get right to the ritual which it turns out is a little anticlimactic (laughs) which is nice there's a 
metaphysical, cosmological aspect to I Willow's love, spell. I love, I love that. That, that is, the is natural nice. state is for them to be together, and he, she just has to break Toth's spell, which is doing all the work of keeping them apart. Mm-hmm. So even though it is kind of anticlimactic, there is no big flash or anything, and Xander doesn't even realize that he has been reunited to himself until he opens his eyes and yeah. sees the other Xander isn't there. Here's the problem for me. It's not that the spell is dissatisfying. Mm-hmm. It's that it is anticlimactic, mm-hmm. which coming on the heels of the inadvertently anticlimactic fight with Toth mm-hmm. feels like the episode is really just going through the motions. It's really just wrapping up its storylines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Had either the battle with Toth been a bigger deal mm-hmm. or if Toth had been absent from the episode entirely, I would have loved the spell. And I love the explanation that Willow gives. I You're absolutely that. right. That's I think that, so that does this, this wonderful world building to that, the magic and how magic works. I love that. I could have lived without Anya's preoccupation with the threesome. Uh-huh. I could have lived without, I can live without that version of Anya. Honestly, one of the reasons that I want Anya to be given more to do is because when she isn't given more to do, this is what we get. This kind of flat, jokey. She's hilariously socially transgressive. Yes. <laughs> And I don't know, man. I mean, she's been around now for, what, a year and a half? As a human, sure. Yeah. She doesn't seem to be picking up on social cues. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I love Anya. And part of that is that I love Emma Caulfield doing her thing. But I can see your point that, that Anya is sometimes the place that we go. She becomes something of the comedy mule, yeah. you know, in, in Buffy, which is it's a concept. I don't know if I've talked about it. I probably have undusted. Um, but in which we have one character who does all the transgressive stuff, who does all the stuff that doesn't fit in the world who carries all of the jokes yeah. so that when we want to tell a joke, but it's not appropriate or it's not a joke that would work, you know, with any of the other characters, we give it to the comedy mule to carry. And then they end up doing things that are ridiculous and that somewhat break their character on a regular basis so that we can have the joke that we want without breaking the world yes. or all of the other characters. I think what bothers me the most, particularly about Anya's approach to sex and sexuality, which is progressive and should be applauded. A female character completely in charge of her own sexuality with no concern for the the, the morals or strictures or conventions of polite society. That is to be celebrated. The problem for me is that Anya always does it with such flat affect that it seems to be trivial. It doesn't seem to be something that she genuinely... Once. It's not her character. I think there's a tension it's between the joke that we put on exactly. her character. There's a tension between yeah. the performance, between the character as we understand her, and this one particular aspect, this one particular. Well, because that part joke. of her personality is only expressed in the context of a joke. We yeah. never see that part of her personality in just a regular or very rarely, at least. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The next day, Xander is moving out of the basement, reminiscing about the terrible things that have happened to him. He persuades Anya to help move some of the boxes, leaving Riley and Xander to talk a little about Buffy. She's like no one else in the world, and she doesn't love him, and he can't keep up. Buffy returns, and she and Riley kiss as Xander looks on. We cut to credits. Mm -hmm. It is a weird beat at the end of a Xander episode to suddenly cut back to the Riley story, isn't it? Well, I actually didn't mind it because of the way that we opened the episode. We opened the episode with Xander and Riley in this sort of... Not battle of the boyfriends, really, but Xander clearly felt that he was losing in that battle. He clearly felt that he was the lesser boyfriend, the lesser man in that circumstance. And then in the end, we come back to this again with Xander, I think, realizing that Riley is not as together as he initially thought. 
Let me ask you this question. Is Riley right? Does Buffy love him? I think that Buffy does. I think that he doesn't appreciate anything that he has. That is exactly what I took from it, too. Buffy, it would seem to me, does in fact love Riley. She just doesn't love Riley the way that Riley wants her to love him. And his love for her is incredibly selfish and immature. And tied up in his own sense of himself, which we addressed textually. Paying attention to him, she's not all about him in every moment. This is all about, this entire thing is about Riley having an understanding of Buffy and who she is. But it really feels very false and very surface that once you get past that surface, I'm going to say the thing that sounds right, even though everything I do undercuts everything you are. Um, I think that from a deliberate perspective, that is brilliant writing. But because I'm never sure if that's deliberate or not, I <laughs> always we, feel a little bit on edge. Can we just this. decide that it's that it's deliberate? I think I think yeah. And celebrate let's, it as genius it because, because it's beautifully it written it's, if it is deliberate. It's beautiful. It's it's incredibly complex psychologically because he is saying all of the right things and like doing all of the right things on the surface. But when it comes down to it, when he's not paying attention to being super perfect boyfriend he's really a jerk right because when he says that buffy doesn't love him yes what he seems to be talking about is the fact that she is greater than him she is simply more than he is and it's self-pitying nonsense it is it's not about love it's about it's almost about condescension yeah it's almost about she won't come down to my level she won't be less than she could be right thus she doesn't love me she doesn't value me except that she does every moment she's with him diminishes her do you wish this moment in the car when she says well don't you kind of wish that you just had regular buffy like she obviously feels that desire from him and knows that that's what and knows that he doesn't celebrate the parts of her that are stronger than him so she asks that question in a way that almost makes her seem like she's wistful for that because she wants nothing more than to just please him. And we addressed this story textually back in season four. Mm-hmm. We had the whole Riley, the post-initiative years. Yes. Where he had to struggle with no longer being hooked on the super soldier serum, no longer being an initiative agent. Mm-hmm. He had to find a place in the world. And it turns out that that place in the world just isn't that cool or interesting or useful or valuable. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating that in an episode in which we textually address Xander's feelings of inadequacy, Xander's feelings of awkwardness and insecurity, we breeze past Riley's Mm -hmm. completely. Yeah. Unfortunately, that is coupled with Riley just being the worst. And so I can't bring myself to care that much. I like it. From a Xander point of view, because this is a Xander episode and this is all central about Xander. So even when we go outside of that to see what's going on with Riley, I think what we see is Xander realizing that while Riley seems so perfect, he's really, really not. And that Xander understands himself to be stronger and better than he thought he was. And also Riley to be not as great as Xander originally thought he was. So I think that I I like it. I like it from a Xander perspective. It's, this is such an internal Xander story, but we open with an external understanding of the world and the way that it is that Riley is perfect and mm-hmm. Xander is flawed, down to we end it with Xander understanding not just himself better, but everybody around him a little better. Yeah. And I like that. I can see that. Mm-hmm. It, it is somewhat compromised because it's specifically Riley. Mm-hmm. Had it been well, God, any other Anybody character, literally is. any other character, it wouldn't have been so troubling. Terrible. But yeah. I do actually think a little worse of Xander yeah. at the end of the episode mm-hmm. because he's not 
He's not. He's not calling Riley on his nonsense. Exactly yeah. right. Mm-hmm. Particularly because Xander has this singular relationship with Buffy, mm-hmm. which we almost acknowledge at the end of the episode. Yeah. Not that I'm into Buffy. Not that I ever was. Well, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah. We've talked mm-hmm. about Xander's direct connection with Buffy previously, right. and mm-hmm. how it may well be rooted more in Buffy's heroism than in her desirability and, just as a, as a girl. And if Xander understands that now, that it's, it's her heroism that he needs from her and sure. that he is always, he could certainly go back and rewrite that narrative in his own head, that he never really was into her, that now that he understands this from a more mature perspective, that, he understands that he loved her as the hero that he needed in his life. That might be true. That might also be expecting a little much from Xander's self-awareness at this point. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> the problem is, though, when Riley complains about his relationship and puts it on Buffy. The problem here is that she doesn't love him. Exactly. I can't believe in a world where Xander stays silent at that. Except Buffy shows up at that exact moment. He doesn't have time to respond, process, understand all of it before Buffy gets there. But this is a script. I mean, it is a story we're being told. We could give him time, but we don't. We certainly don't. And And I I don't think we're left at the end of the episode with with the impression that Xander would have spoken up if Buffy hadn't come in. I think, I mean, the impression that I've always had is that Xander feels for Riley in that moment, that he sympathizes with Riley. And I think it's entirely possible to have that sense of empathy. You're mm-hmm. right. That is Xander's strongest mm-hmm. quality. That is his, his most superpower. admirable quality. Sure. Yeah. I think that that is an interesting perspective, making Riley so fundamentally unlikable mm-hmm. and making his his position, his opinion so unsustainable. Mm-hmm. I think that compromises the intended effect of the end of the episode. Right. Well, and from Xander's perspective, let's not forget that Xander hasn't been where we've been. He hasn't seen all of Riley that we've That's seen. That's certainly true, too. So from his perspective, I can see him seeing Riley as being this really great guy who's hurting because Buffy won't get close. Now, this is one of the narratives that we tend to come back to all through Buffy, that Buffy can't give of herself, that she can't completely throw herself into a relationship, Which that is... she can't sacrifice her identity to a man, and that somehow that's a failing in her ability well, right. as, <laughs> she can't, as a woman. No matter how hard she tries. <laughs> how, no matter how hard she tries, she can't, right. No, the, yeah. the, the, the curse of Buffy is the curse of the truly exceptional. Yes, that she that is always alone. a classical hero. Mm-hmm. She is cursed with her specialness. Yeah. And that that does actually elevate her above you know, common mm-hmm. human society, she can't make those direct connections very easily, mm-hmm. particularly not those connections that require her to subordinate herself to someone who is inferior. And it's not about Riley not having Slayer skills. It's mm-hmm. not about him not being superpowered. It's about a purity of spirit. It's about a kindness and empathy, a generosity. It's about him wanting Buffy to be less. He doesn't want to rise to her level. He wants to drag her her down to his. Right. And I mean, the thing is that if Riley were a little more mature, if he had an understanding of, of how to love somebody in a way that is truly not about you, but about them, then that could have been something that might've worked for him and might've given him that sort of um, emotional anchoring that Buffy really needs. The thing that we find kind of over and over again in Buffy, and we will be discussing this, you know, well into the future as much as we've discussed it in the past, is that in her relationships with 
men, she really does tend to try to shrink herself down rather than demand that they elevate themselves to where she is, which is what she deserves and what she should have. And instead, we kind of always treat this as some kind of failing in her ability to be close to people. Now, the nice thing is... True with Parker, true with Scott Hope, true with Angel... Most of the people in the universe don't see it that way. Buffy sees it that way. Yeah. But Giles doesn't. Willow doesn't. Nobody else sees it that No, way. in every other example, I think, we have yes. couples who genuinely do elevate each other. Right. Going mm-hmm. all the way back to arguably Xander and Cordelia. Yeah. We talked at the time. One of the things we loved about that relationship was the way that the relationship itself made both of them better people. Yeah. Willow and Oz, I think, are Willow and Oz, of that too. Willow and Tara, oh, certainly. Willow and Tara, absolutely. There are just so many examples mm-hmm. of this. It's You're right. I think it is completely specific to mm-hmm. Buffy. We'll continue to talk about that. Oh, as that's going to be an ongoing discussion in the weeks for to some come. time. Yes. I want to change gears, though. I want okay. desperately to stop talking about Riley and to talk instead about Xander. Let's. I love Xander. To talk about what we get of Xander's character, of his role in the show, his role in the team, his presence as a friend and a companion. What are we supposed to make of Xander's superpower? Is it simply empathy? I think it is it is empathy it is his ability to uh, kind of understand and feel what other people are feeling but I think that he's always had that to a certain degree I think that we've seen it develop much much more in the last season where he's sort of been moving into like you know early in season four Buffy's upset she goes to the bar she talks to Xander Xander gives her emotional counsel and that's kind of been his role he never saw the value I think in that role in season four where he's trying to kind of get himself into that space but we've sort of seen him I mean he struggled with identity as many of our characters did in season four and we saw him sort of go through this this I feel like is putting a cap on that it is it is not just that we understand Xander to have this ability to be the heart to be the emotional center of the Scoobies but that he now understands it. And then we cap it with this. He's, he's playing to. that role with Riley, mm. where he is watching what Riley's going through, empathizing and and understanding Riley from a perspective outside of himself, which actually shows a great deal of maturity. It's interesting to me that Buffy is so often a show about exceptionalism. It is so often a show about heroism. Yeah. We have Buffy growing into her power continually through the series. We have Willow finding her role, what makes her special, and becoming, through that, empowered. That's true of most of our characters. I dare say almost all of our characters. They arc toward greater power, greater confidence, greater agency through the series. That isn't true of Xander. Xander's great virtue is one of very quiet humanity. He is the Sam Gamgee. Yeah, well, it, I think that it's actually as true of Xander or of Xander as it is of anybody else. Yeah, I think that Xander absolutely does arc toward his exceptionalism. It's just that his exceptionalism no. is a more human, mundane exceptionalism than this super powered exceptionalism. Right, but I think in Buffy, we constantly draw a contrast between the exceptional and the human. Mm -hmm. We oppose the slayer and the human sides of Buffy. We oppose the witch and the human sides of Willow. We certainly oppose the werewolf and human sides of Oz or the vampire and human sides of Angel. We oppose exceptionalism and humanity. Xander finds his strength, his role, his purpose in the human without Mm -hmm. ever touching exceptionalism, which is so weird because Xander was one of the first people to be textually granted exceptionalism Mm -hmm. by the show. Long before Willow started casting spells, 
Xander became a soldier. Yeah. He had actual skills, actual, useful, workable skills that have been used hardly at all. Yeah. And Xander's most important moments have never been associated with his military training, with his, his magically and induced military training. Whenever we've brought him into that space, it always felt a little weird. And I think possibly it's because it always related to guns and weaponry, which, again, go against the very central thesis of Buffy, which is right. that power should be earned. But also, you know, tactics mm-hmm. and strategy. Yeah. He doesn't seem to have any kind of tactical input. Mm-hmm. And perhaps that's because his training isn't directly relevant to the kinds of battles in which Buffy finds herself. Until we find ourselves with the initiative, in which case we do kind of revisit that a little bit. Well, though the extent of Xander's training and the applicability of that training in the initiative is he really knows how to wear a sweater. No, he does know how, and he wore it great. (laughs) (laughs) Though arguably, so did Spike. Well, so we're maybe not uh, making Xander terribly special in that regard. Well, okay, it's hard for anybody to to look like better than James Marsters. That's a in true anything. thing that I struggle with every day, believe you me. I think <laughs> what's really on my mind about Xander is the Sam Gamgee comparison. Mm-hmm. It is the J.R.R. Tolkien comparison, mm-hmm. where greatness always comes at a cost. It mm-hmm. always carries a price tag with it. Yeah. Exceptionalism always has a darker side. Xander gets to be simple and pure. He gets to be the heart because he's not tainted by it. Mm -hmm. Sam can give up the ring. Yeah. And Xander can be at the heart of the Scooby gang Mm -hmm. because he's not, you know, superpowered. Well, yeah. And I think that we see in Riley, too, what happens when you have superpowers and then they're taken away and you are returned back to the mundane world. You are returned back to just a generalized humanity. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Riley has uh, a greed there, almost an obsessive. You know, it's weird now that I'm thinking about comparisons with The Lord of the Rings. That's pretty much all I can see. Right. But it is interesting that, that Riley has this golemish drive Mm -hmm. for more he needs to be special he Mm -hmm. needs to be the hero he needs to be he needs to be better than buffy and he can't like sam one of the things that sam does is you know fine if you can't you know go i will carry you if i can't carry the ring i'll carry you that is an exceptionally human kind of of greatness but i still see that humanity as being the ultimate Greatness, um, that the paranormal powers and exceptionalism are not as celebrated. They, they, they live, they exist in service oh, right. of preserving that human mundane greatness for everyone else. I think we're, we're talking about semantics. When I talk about exceptionalism, I'm talking You're about You're talking you know, about paranormal powers. exceptionalism. Yes, well, yes Because that's the kind of exceptionalism that I think Buffy trades in most often. Right. She's special because she's the Slayer, and that's supernatural. Willow is special, capital S, special, because she's a witch, and that's supernatural. Mm-hmm. Even Giles's abilities, his knowledge is supernatural. It is arcane. He has knowledge that most people shouldn't have. Yes. And that also comes with a price. It comes with a cost. Well, and he also has, I mean, let's not forget, I mean, he he trafficked in the supernatural sure. quite a bit as a kid, um, caused a fair amount of trouble, and, and has the abilities. how he's still. managed to survive all this head trauma. Yeah, I would guess so. <laughs> I would guess so. Um, but yeah, no, I think that we do have, and again, it, it does come down to semantics, but there is a real, true, genuine exceptionalism that comes from being mundane. Yes, no, um, I, I do completely agree. I think agree. that we do celebrate in in Buffy as much as we celebrate everything else. It's the difference, I think, between the lowercase h heroism and sure. the uppercase h mm-hmm. heroism. I think that that difference is the difference in Buffy. Mm-hmm. And it's a difference that's actually explored rather beautifully in this episode. Yeah. 
this episode for me is cluttered. Mm -hmm. It is a little unfocused. I feel that there are great ideas left unexplored. And I think that we are too distracted by stuff that doesn't matter, stuff that doesn't serve the episode. The entire Toth plot, as I've said, can be lifted out completely. I don't really mind the cutaways to Dawn. I don't really mind the cutaway to Spike. That's so fast that it's difficult because to be upset by it. they're quick and they don't weigh us down. Right. They don't really, they kill the pacing a little bit, but not so badly that we can't recover. But not as easily. badly as, you know, the, the intercut scenes between between Cologne Salesman mm-hmm. Xander at Giles's and then Trash Xander at, at Willow's. See, I love that. I like it too, <laughs> but it feels like it just, we spend so long figuring out that it's Toth, mm-hmm. only for it not to be Toth. I think that's part of my disappointment in that particular part is is we treat the Toth reveal like it is the actual reveal of the episode. Mm-hmm. We invest in that like it matters and it doesn't. I think that it does. I actually, I can see where thematically, if it was Xander's own agency that created this problem, it might work a little bit better with the central theme of the mm-hmm. story. Um, but I actually, I don't mind Hoth. I like that we dispatch with him rather quickly, even though it is somewhat anticlimactic, because he served his purpose. Let's not pretend that this is a big dangerous demon. This is obviously the trash Xander of the demon set, which is fine. Um, <laughs> so so I'm, I'm more than happy to let that go. I think that this episode is beautifully constructed. I don't feel like it's terribly cluttered. I think that we move rather quickly and with purpose along the lines of the theme. I think that where it can get a little confusing is that it really isn't about Toth. This really doesn't have anything to do with Toth. Our demon of the week is not important. And by the fact that you could trivially replace the demon of the week with Xander finding some kind of magical thing and and calling it down or whatever. And I think doing that would give you back the, I don't know, three or four minutes that we spend with Toth yeah, sure. in the course of the episode. Mm-hmm. It would be trivial, but it would give you enough space that I wouldn't feel the the clutter of, of those juxtaposed yeah, scenes. Yeah. Or, you know, Anya's threesome joke. I wouldn't begrudge those jokes so much because I wouldn't feel that they were taking away from what the episode should be doing because we would have enough space that we could do both. Which it does really, really well. I think that the stuff about these two halves of Xander, that they are both Xander, was a really nice reveal and gave this episode much more texture than it would have if it had just been Demon Xander. We've talked about the ways in which this episode is constructed to delight Mm -hmm. you. Oh, yeah. But there are things in this episode that I think were put in there just for me. Oh, yeah. Jane Espenson showing off her nerd street cred. <laughs> There's a lot of Star Trek in this episode. Oh, and the Babylon 5 commemorative We'll talk plates. about Babylon 5 in just a moment because that <laughs> breaks my heart. We do have Xander making reference to living in the basement with a Klingon outfit. Sure. Mm-hmm. We do have a reference to his extensive comic book collection. Yes. Which is pretty cute. We then have both Xanders simultaneously saying, shoot us both, Spock. Which is a reference to the original Star Trek to the episode Whom Gods Destroy, because all the original Star Trek episodes are named things like Whom Gods Destroy. (laughs) We also have the entire premise of the episode, the idea that the other alternate Xander is an evil Xander, Mm -hmm. comes to us from an episode of Star Trek. It comes to us from The Enemy Within, which is the episode in which Kirk is split in a transporter accident into good Kirk and evil Kirk. I love that that... That culture, that yeah. celebration of classic science fiction is just woven so lovingly, so affectionately mm-hmm. through the episode as a whole. 
Uh, Jane, of course, for those of you who might not know, did write for Star Trek. Mm -hmm. She was brought in by Paramount to write, I believe, first on The Next Generation. She wrote a Next Generation spec script Mm -hmm. and ultimately wrote one of my favorite episodes of Deep Space Nine. Yeah. She's got ties to Star Trek that go back, (laughs) if you'll forgive the pun, generations. (laughs) We then have the reference to Xander's collection of Babylon 5 commemorative plates. <laughs> Caleb on Twitter squeed, or yes. at least predicted my squeeing when we got to the reference to Babylon 5 commemorative plates. But that is a squee that is tinged with sadness. I am very glad that Xander respects Babylon 5. That seems entirely true to his character. He is a fine fellow indeed, and Babylon 5 is a tremendous television show. The problem is that there were never any Babylon 5 commemorative <gasps> plates. And that is sad. It is something that only exists in the Buffy universe. Right. This is one of the major breaking points (laughs) between the Buffyverse and the real world. Mm -hmm. Apparently, Sunnydale can have a dock, an international airport, three schools, 15 graveyards, but only one Starbucks. Mm -hmm. That would never happen in the real world, not even in the year 2000. Also, Babylon 5 was apparently a slightly bigger deal in the Buffyverse than it was in real life. Oh, makes you kind of wish you could just move into the Buffyverse, doesn't it? I am going to sit you down and make you watch (laughs) Babylon 5. I should say, too, that Michael Bailey Smith, who played Toth, did appear in an episode of Babylon 5. Hey, how cool. He played one of those nameless aliens. I think he actually had a name, but I don't remember what it is. I need to go back and watch the show again. Babylon 5, you guys. Two thumbs up. We'll probably do a show after we're done with Dustin. (laughs) You don't mind me making that promise on the air, do you, dear? Absolutely not. (laughs) Let's put this episode on the list, shall we? Let's get to the big list of every Buffy episode ever. Do you have a starting bid? I do have a starting bid. I think that this is a fantastic episode. Obviously, I understand that it was made to delight me, much as Jane Espenson was put on this planet just to delight me. And I appreciate that. I'm sure that's entirely Thank true. Thank you, universe. No, I'm sure. I'm sure that there are actually lots of reasons why she's on this planet. Um, but at any rate, she absolutely delights me. I love the work that she does. And now we're moving into the Jane Espenson work that is absolutely how I know and remember Jane Espenson. This is the reason why I'm such a huge fan. Uh, so for me, looking at the list, it goes in for me about at number 13 under I Only Have Eyes for You from season two slightly above Bad Girls from season three. Um, And that's kind of where I would put this. I think this is a really strong, confident, well-paced, well-executed episode. I don't think it'll come as any surprise to the listener to discover (laughs) that I would put it slightly lower on the list, though honestly, not that much lower. The most obvious point of comparison for me is obviously the Zeppo. Sure. Mm -hmm. We've referenced that show multiple times as we've discussed the replacement. I I do think it's better than the Zeppo. Mm -hmm. I think the Zeppo has some very unique problems that really are a function of that of that form-breaking shift in POV, which Mm -hmm. we attributed to the Zeppo. Though people still, I'm glad to say, send us emails arguing with our conclusions on that episode. (laughs) For me, it is better than the Zeppo, but I have trouble putting it much higher than that. I could see it being better than the initiative, perhaps, in 17. I think it's certainly less problematic than Superstar. Yes. And again, mm-hmm. a very similar episode. Mm-hmm. Is it better than Restless? Is it better than Amends? Amends, which is at this point on the list by virtue of its philosophical complexity, mm-hmm. by virtue of the fact that that Amends puts forth a thesis, tests it, and comes to a satisfying conclusion. My biggest problem with The Replacement is I feel that that kind of storytelling isn't as well represented as it could be. I want more about what it is to be Xander. I want more about the two sides of his personality. I want to see a greater 
investment in that story, in the core idea, in the central conceit. So I'm frustrated in a weird way that the replacement isn't just more the replacement, mm -hmm. that it doesn't feel like a more authentic version of itself. Mm -hmm. So for me, amends would be the breaking point. Mm -hmm. I could... I could see putting it in above Restless, but and it's interesting that even there, we're talking about two spots on yeah. the list. It's mm -hmm. a very close difference. It's such a slim margin, and the top 20 even. Can it's, we yeah. compromise, put it in under Bad Girls, but above Amends? You Both know of what? us move one spot. <laughs> I actually was going to give you under Amends, but above Restless. Oh, really? I was I, As you were making that argument, I think that... Amends is the first episode of Angel the Series. Amends oh, it absolutely is. sets down a philosophy of why we fight. It talks about much, much deeper things. And while this, the job of the replacement is not necessarily to talk about things that are quite that deep. And so but using that be. comparison, I think that it does to it a certain degree. A, to it's, a certain it's degree. That, it's I agree. that lowercase exceptionalism. It's, it's talking about right. what it is that makes Xander both human and exceptional. But in a very strange and understanding way, himself. as Amends gives us this argument for Angel, it yeah. tells us not just why Angel fights, but why Angel is. Mm hmm I feel as though the replacement with some very minor tweaking, with, with removing Toth, taking a little bit of extra time, mm -hmm. giving Nicholas Brandon a little more to do in terms of texture and tonal variation, mm -hmm. I think that the replacement could be as fundamental, mm -hmm. as pivotal to Xander's character as Amends is to Angel's character. I think this could be the episode where we learn why Xander fights, why yeah. he does the things that he does. I think it is. I mean, I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. I understand where you're coming from, but I do feel like it does accomplish that. But I would be absolutely perfectly comfortable with this going in at 15, right above Restless, right below Amends. I think that's a great compromise. I'll take it. Okay. <laughs> and that is it for the first Dusted of this week. We'll be back on Thursday with the third episode of the second season of Angel, First impressions, it's time for Gunn to get to know Cordelia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and getting to know Cordelia is always very fun indeed. A lot to talk about in that episode. We'll be back on Thursday with that. Until then, I'm Alistair Stevens. And I'm Lonnie Diane Rich. And this is Dusted. So, three quick things to discuss in the spoiler zone yes. this week. We'll go from least important to most important, okay. I suppose. <laughs> Let's start with robots. Okay, sure. <laughs> so many references to evil robots it's in robot. this yeah. episode. Mm -hmm. This is, of course, all foreshadowing for Jane's next script, I Was Made to Love You, the 15th episode of season five, which mm -hmm. introduces, among other things, the Buffy bot. Yes. I don't like the robots in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I can completely understand why you don't like the robots. The robots are absolutely a sci-fi thing that's sort of wedged into this fantasy space. Um, I, because of the way that the robots are written, I think I um, I allow for it a little bit more. It doesn't bother <laughs> me that much. I sort of, you know, whistle past the fact that it is very sci-fi yeah. and completely unbelievable in that time frame that, that at a time where we have not traversed the uncanny valley in regular, you know, robotics at this point, we're getting real close. Um, but the fact that, that this kid in his basement, you know, with, with obviously fewer resources than, say, you know, MIT and sure. whatnot, um, is able to make a completely lifelike, super-powered robot yes. uh, is, is a little bit weak. And especially because he made her to be a girlfriend. She's essentially a sex bot. <laughs> well, which is at least 
a problematic topic that is explicitly it addressed is, in the yes, episode. So yes. so it, it could be worse. It's gross, and we acknowledge <laughs> that it is totally and completely gross. Yes. For me, it's it's so strange because if they were simply magical creatures, yeah. if there was simply a hand wave, that there's golems. a spell, there's, exactly. Yeah. If there was something there that explained it, I could be happier about it. Mm-hmm. But as it is, maybe I'll feel differently having just come through the initiative and paid very close attention to their technological approach. Yeah. I'm going to be interested to see how it how it works out for me. But previously, I have not enjoyed the robots. We have a few more episodes before then. It is cute, though, to see Jane so clearly foreshadowing oh, yeah. her next script, which mm-hmm. you had obviously worked on, if not completed, mm-hmm. by the time that the replacement... Oh, certainly. Yeah, by that time, they'd already broken that story at the very least. Which is yeah. just mm-hmm. adorable. So that's another Jane Espenson, mm-hmm. James A. Contner production, which makes me think that I'll probably really enjoy it this time I, around. I think that like it's, it's where the robots come from that is the problem. I like the way the robots are used throughout Buffy. I think that they are used to their best effect. Yes. Um, and, uh, and so because of that, I do forgive that kind of awkward you know, wedging of a sci-fi element into my nice fantasy story. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm okay with it. It doesn't bother me quite as much. Next week, we turn our attention to Out of My Mind, the fourth episode of the fifth season, uh, where Spike's desire for Buffy will be more fully realized. We didn't talk a great deal about the somewhat disturbing scene with the mannequin head Mm -hmm. because there's no way to talk about it without foreshadowing what comes next. Without spoiling the whole thing. But what comes next is, well, everything. Yeah. Spike and Buffy are about to begin. Oh, man, I love it. I don't remember it happening this early in season five. No, I it's don't either. Crazy to I me. would have placed it at the middle of season five when he realizes that he's in love with her. But we the way that he time. struggles with that throughout yeah. the first part of the season, I absolutely love. And I think that his obsession with Buffy, um, that we see it as the obsession of a villain with somebody he wants to kill. And he understands it that um, way on a surface, too. Yes, he understands it, though I don't think we're given that degree of comfort. The way that he strokes the face the way of that the, he strokes the man. The face. I think that is foreshadowing I think if so ever too. there was some. Yes. It's absolutely. ambiguous enough in the moment that even without knowledge of the show to come, I think you could be you would be well justified in speculating that there was perhaps more to Spike's interest in Buffy. Than, oh, absolutely. Than the murder of the Slayer. Yeah. But mm-hmm. we'll talk about that more next week. And then the following week, things start to get very difficult indeed. Yeah. Because we call back to Joyce's headache. Oh, God. I know. Not next week, but the following week. No place like home when we discover Joyce's tumor mm-hmm. and really begin the arc that will carry us through to some of the most heartbreaking episodes in all of Buffy. Oh, yeah. There's so much in season five. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to talk about it, but also I really don't want to talk about it. No, I know. The thing with Joyce is so heartbreaking. And one of the things that I absolutely love about the Joyce storyline, as terrible as it is, is that it brings us to this incredibly human space while we're dealing with these exceptional, I mean, obviously season five, we haven't gotten to glory yet. We haven't gotten to the fact that we are no longer battling a demon. We're battling a god and that kind of level of power Mm -hmm. and paranormal. Um, We haven't seen it to that extent in Buffy just yet. And yet one of the major storylines of season five is about this very human, very mundane loss 
when Joyce dies, she dies from an aneurysm. Yeah. It's just something that happens. You know, it's a natural death. And dealing with that, where we've been dealing with everything on this paranormal scale, I think that they they contrast and complement each other really, really nicely in giving this season some real human texture. And I think that that's part of what the replacement brings to it, too. This sense of this is a story about very human Xander, mm -hmm. you know, um, of course, paranormal elements in the replacement. But I like that we're telling these very, very human stories alongside this this really you know, exceptional paranormal thing going on. And telling them in this more serialized format yeah. that we discussed a little earlier, mm -hmm. this is going to be Xander and Anya's apartment yep. going forward. Mm -hmm. And Xander is going to work this construction job, it would seem, until the end of the show. Yeah, absolutely. And his so, construction job is going to be real handy considering how many doors and windows get busted <laughs> in. It's a lot of money to be made in construction. In oh, Sunnydale. I'm telling you. <laughs> you do have to watch out for the various burial grounds and crypts and oh, sure. demonic hell holes beneath yes. the surface. Though. That, like that, a little funny a little syphilis. Yes, yeah, you exactly. don't want to be pouring a lot of foundations <laughs> is what I'm saying. Luckily, Xander's going to move on from that. And we'll see him, albeit in the periphery, we're going to see him advance in his career. It's going sure. to be a lot of fun to track as we yeah. move through the show and really pay attention to those small details. That, I think, is going to do it, though, with a great deal of grim foreboding about what we're going to face in the next few weeks. Mm -hmm. We're going to wrap it up there. Guys, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back on Thursday with First Impressions and next Monday with Out of My Mind. You do not want to miss that. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. Grr. Arg. <laughs>